You are listening to Chthonia, the podcast of the Dark Feminine. Chthonia's logo was designed by J.R. Malpair. Background music is Phantasm by Kevin McLeod. Hello, and welcome to Chthonia. I'm your host, Breege Burke, and um, this episode we are working our way through the uh, Das Mahavidyas, the, uh, the ten... Uh, as they're described, tantric visions of the divine feminine. Um, and now we are currently up to Tara. Now, we're, as I've said earlier, we are not going in order. Technically, in the order uh, put forth in the the stories about the Mahavidyas, the one we're discussing today is the second one, okay? And her name is Tara, okay? Tara, um, There's there's been, I have read um, some writings from uh, sadhaks and from tantras and from tantrikas and, and people who have said that the, the Mahavidya stories, uh, even though here in the podcast we are doing them out of order, technically the order is significant. So Kali is usually listed as the first. And sort of the intensity or perhaps the, um, I hate to use the word purity, but let's just say the um, it goes from the least material to the most material. Uh, in terms of the order of the ten. So uh, the Mahavidyas who are listed first are closer and closer to the core of pure consciousness uh, without form. Uh, it might be helpful for people who are interested in Kabbalah to think of the Tree of Life, where Keter, or the crown, uh, is close to the Ein Sof, or Ein Sofer, which is like limitless light, which is formless, and that it moves its way through the ten Sephirot down to Malkut, which of course is the kingdom, and that is sort of the manifestation of divine in on the earth and in the world. And so you move from sort of um, the less dense to the more dense, I suppose. Um, Plato talks a little bit about this too in his ideas of form, but but unfortunately, what tends to happen is that there tends to be the idea that the lighter, more spiritual, is somehow better than the denser and more material. And actually, all of it is part of the same system. I plan to talk about that when I talk about Kamala, who's actually the 10th Mahavidya. But we will, so I'm going to sidetrack that discussion for now. For right now, though, we are going to go to Tara. Now, Tara is interesting because she looks almost identical to Kali. In fact, I have seen images of Kali posted when it, that are actually Tara. Um, and it's it's not that easy. And, and it's, it's, it's a very easy mistake to make. And, and it's not necessarily that, one is not the other because Kali and Tara are to some degree part of the same uh, same type of Shakti. Um, <clears throat> but there are some differences with Tara from Kali. Okay, the name Tara means star, and she's often known, David Kinsley describes her as the goddess who guides through troubles. Um, her associations, she's associated with the energy of the sun, and she's also associated with the fire of, crema the, of cremation. Like, she is the literal fire of the cremation grounds, okay? When there are images of her, she looks like Kali with the, um, you know, the, the blue skin, the, the tongue hanging out, <clears throat> or the mouth open, the uh, necklace of, you know, skulls or heads. Um, the difference is that there's a few differences with Tara. Um, and she's standing on a corpse or on the body of Shiva, one or the other. She's always shown, though, with a fiery background. There's always a blaze behind her, okay? So Tara is only shown with a blaze. Uh, she also always appears with, like, a full curvy stomach and breasts. Now, while nothing has ever explicitly described her as pregnant, she sort of has this maternal 
look to her. Kali is always perceived as very thin or very emaciated. Some some images portray her as sort of like a slim, attractive female kind of thing. And it's not that Tara is not portrayed that way, but she's portrayed as more curvy. She's got, um, <clears throat> you know, a curvy uh, front. And the implication, the images I have seen that you will probably see if you are watching the YouTube version of this seem to imply pregnancy. Uh, again, even though that's not overtly stated. So there's a maternal um, aspect or implication to Tara. And she also wears a tiger skin, um, which tiger skin now is when we talk about Tamunda, the tiger skin, um, she, who also wears a tiger skin, there's the sense that the tiger skin represents the desires and the conquering of desire. Okay, so there's that, you know, that there's that, um, that aspect of it or the controlling of it. Um, <clears throat> but also because Kali is purely naked, you know, Tara has this, um, there's, there's a little bit more that, that's going on here in the form of control. There's a little bit more, um, even with the very fierce destructive aspect, there's also a sense of being maternal. And interestingly, Tara is associated with salvation. Now, salvation's not really a concept in Hinduism. Uh, liberation is. And that, of course, is probably what is meant. But salvation, in this case, literally means saving from death. And we'll see that there's an origin for that Um in the Buddhist Tara, okay? Now, the Buddhist Tara is probably the precursor of the Hindu Tara, although there's some disagreement about that. They seem to be somewhat contemporary, but the um, the, the Buddhist Tara, uh, she's probably first emerged. I, there's some uh, texts that suggest um, the Buddhist Tara may have been around since about the 6th century CE, um, <clears throat> but I think she's first sort of explicitly mentioned around the 8th century, and it's said that she's worshipped after, <coughs> excuse me, after the 11th century, okay? Um, <coughs> around the 6th century, there was sort of a movement towards the uh, female bodhisattvas, and the more uh, greater inclusion of women uh, in Buddhism. So we see Tara as a manifestation at this time. Now, in the Buddhist tradition, Tara is said to be born from the tear of the Bodhisattva um, <clears throat> Avalokiteshvara uh, upon his Mahasamadhi, which would be um, the time that, well, we would think of it as death, but um, for these very great Bodhisattvas, it tends to be that time when they are leaving the body uh, to <clears throat> achieve nirvana, to be, you know, uh, to get off the wheel of birth and death and to be, you know, to, to achieve that. Um but it's said that Avalokiteshvara looked down and saw the sufferings um, of his of, of people, um, and, and even though he was looking, at, he basically he was looking at a large lake at the in, in the world. I forget the name of the lake now, but it reminded him of the lakes of hell where people were suffering in anguish, and um, it caused him to you know tears to fall from his eyes. And and he had two different entities that came from these tears that fell, and one of them is the goddess Tara. Okay, and so she is considered to be born from the tears of compassion from Avalokiteshvara. <clears throat> and in many um, Buddhist interpretations, Tara is born um, as a kind of a bodhisattva herself. Either she is the queen, you know, she's, she's always in the royal family of, of Tibet, but either in China or in Nepal, she is born like either as green Tara or white Tara. And there are many images of her that you can find. Um, I have one downstairs myself, uh, and she's a very benign-looking figure. She's a very, um, very, you know, obviously very Asian-looking figure, but she tends to look more, um, more, more, more Chinese or more um, rather than Indian per se. 
uh, obviously, in her look, <clears throat> and uh, but but she has very very gentle and compassionate um, look about her, very gentle, very motherly. Now the Buddhist Tara um, is is like I said, she's associated with cheating death. She she cannot stand to see the suffering of her devotees, so she will step in and she will intervene and save them from uh, deadly situations. Now, David Kinsley, again, in our Tantric Visions of the Divine Feminines, thinks that the Hindu Tara came out of this, this Buddhist Tara. Uh, however, there's another scholar, Amala Ghosh, who thinks that Tara is actually a manifestation of the goddess Durga. So, you know, which came first, you know, chicken or the egg kind of a thing. Um, it's not certain. What is clear is that there's a relationship between the two of them, and the relationship is compassion. Um, but... Uh, their their aspects are very different. Now, having said that, um, Buddhist Tara is does have um, even though she's portrayed as this benign, smiling, compassionate figure, there is a text called the Tibetan Homages to the Twenty One Taras, and they mention her fierce aspects. And I want to read a few of these to you. Now, this is mind you, this is from the Buddhist text. Okay, this is not Hindu at the moment. So, listen to this description of the uh, Buddhist Tara. Uh, homage lady who annihilates the heroes of Mara, Ture, the terrible lady, slaying all enemies by frowning the brows of her lotus face. Homage lady who strikes the earth with her hand, who pounds upon it with her feet, shattering the seven underworlds with the sound hum made by her frowning brows. By the way, just as a side comment, that would connect her to Durga because Durga shatters the armies of um, the great uh, demon with the sound hum. Okay, and um, homage lady who strikes with the feet of Ture, whose seed is the form of the syllable hum, shaking Mount Meru, Mandara, uh, Kailasha, and all the triple world. And they mention this particularly fierce form of Tara called Tara Kurokula, and described as father. Father, father, listen to me, oh my god. I don't, is that Freudian? I don't know. But she's described as follows, is what I was trying to say. Uh, homage and praise to her who stands in the dancing pose, haughty with furious rage, who has a diadem of five skulls, who bears a tiger skin. I pay homage to the red one, bearing her fangs, whose body is frightful, who is adorned with the five signs of ferocity, whose necklace is a half a hundred human heads, who is the conqueress of Mara. Okay, and so there's this Tara Kurukula in, in Buddhism, and we see in her uh, a much closer relationship to the Hindu Tara. Okay, now the Hindu Tara is first mentioned in a 7th century Hindu text called the, uh, uh, the Vasvadatta. Okay, and the, the translated quote from Kinsley is, The Lady Twilight was seen, devoted to the stars, and clad in red sky as a Buddhist nun. Okay, so um, it's interesting, so that's just it. The Lady Twilight, this, this, this star, Tara, your star, devoted to the stars and clad in red sky. So there's a red color associated with Tara. Okay, so we're going to notice when we talk about the rest of the Mahavidyas, they have, some of them have certain specific colors. So Tara seems to be associated with the color red, even though her skin is like that blue-black uh, of Kali. And also as a Buddhist nun, okay, so there's this idea of the, um, you know, um, very spiritual, renounced, um, bodhisattva-type uh, Buddhist woman. Okay, now let's, by, by contrast, talk about the, the Hindu Tara. Um, we did talk about the fierce aspects of the Buddhist Tara, um, and you'll see some similarities here. Uh, this is from the Tara Tantra. Uh, Tara is described, standing firmly with her left foot on a corpse, she laughs loudly, transcendent. Her hand 
Hands hold a sword, a blue lotus, a dagger, and a begging bowl. She raises her war cry. Her matted and tawny hair is bound with poisonous blue snakes. Thus the terrifying Tara destroys the unconscious of the three worlds and carries them off on her head. To the other shore. Now we're going to talk about the other shore in a little bit. Okay. Um, <clears throat> and this Tara, again, and, and when you see images of her, you're going to say, wow, she looks just like Holly. Um, except for those few little details that were mentioned. So in this particular podcast, what I want to talk about are um, four particular different aspects of Tara that are important to understanding her. Uh, first is the Tantric Tara, and I'm going to tell you for that the story of the sage uh, Vasista. That's, a, that's an incredibly, incredibly important story. You know, it, to me, it's, it's, it's the essence of the Tara story. That's, that's the important one. Um, we also have this maternal Tara, this maternal aspect, and I have another story connected with that. There's her association with the sun and with the fires, okay? And then <clears throat> lastly, her association with compassion. And there I want to talk about sort of different ideas about compassion, which may not really be that different at the root, but what we think about when we talk about compassion in Buddhism and Hinduism uh, versus traditional Buddhism versus Hindu ideas and sort of tantric ideas. And I think I'm going to finish up with a few other stories of Tara, a few other non, maybe not as popular renderings uh, of her, but stories of her and her, you know, origins or significance nonetheless. Okay, so I'm going to start with the tantric Tara. Now I'm going to read from the story of Sage Vasista, and I'm going to take this from David Kinsley. Uh, now the Tara that he uh, encounters is called Mahachina Tara. And <clears throat> there's also, um, in Hinduism, she is sometimes also referred to as Ugara Tara, okay? And this implies a very, very ferocious kind of an aspect. Um, <clears throat> so, um, okay, so let me just tell this story as he uh, tells it here. Um, okay, so the most convincing testimony to Tara's earlier Buddhist association is a myth that features the sage Vasista's attempts to worship Tara. Once upon a time, he did austerities for 10,000 years, but got no results. He went to the god Brahma and asked for a powerful mantra that might help him. Brahma told him about the glory of Tara. It is through Tara's power, he said, that he creates the world. Vishnu protects it and Shiva destroys it. Okay, so remember now, Tara is a Shakti. She's, she's the power um, <clears throat> without the power of the divine feminine, nothing moves. Okay. <clears throat> says she is infinitely more glorious than a million of suns. Okay, there's her something. And she is the source of all light, and she reveals the Vedas. Mm. Brahma then told Vasista to recite the Tara Mantra for success. Vasista went to Kamakya at the famous goddess shrine in Assam and undertook Tara's worship. After 1,000 years, he was still unsuccessful. At this point, the sage became angry and was about to curse Tara for her indifference. The whole earth trembled in fear, and even the gods were disturbed. At that moment, Tara appeared in front of Vasista. She told him that he had been wasting his time because he did not understand her or know how to worship her. That's interesting, you know, this very austere and pure way of approaching the goddess, and Tara's telling him no. She said that Vasista did not know her appearance in the form of Chinatara and that she could not be propitiated through yoga and austerities. Only Vishnu in the form of Buddha knows my form of worship, she said. And to learn this kind of worship, you have to go to China. 
Tara then disappeared. Vasista went to Tibet to find out what to do. Near the Himalayas, he had a vision of the Buddha surrounded by many beautiful girls and intoxicated with wine. <clears throat> they were all naked, drinking, and carousing. Vasista was shocked and refused an invitation to take part in the frolic. Then a voice from the sky said to him, This is the best way of worshipping Tara. If you want immediate success, you have to adopt this type of worship. Vasista then took refuge in Vishnu in his form as the Buddha and asked to be instructed in this method. The Buddha revealed to him the Kula Marga, a tantric type of sadhana, warning him that it was very secret. A central feature of this path is the ritual of the five forbidden things. Now you can go back to my tantra intros to learn about those. But they involve eating certain foods, including meat and having sex and drinking wine or drinking alcohol. With this ritual and on this path, one can live in the midst of good and bad things while remaining aloof from them. The Buddha told him, on this path, there's no need for traditional types of rituals. Worship is mental and not physical. All times are auspicious. Nothing is inauspicious. There is no difference between pure and impure. There are no restrictions on what one can eat or drink. Worship can be done any place and any time. A friendly attitude towards women should be cultivated and a worship of women should be practiced. Okay. Now that, um, that's very, there's that, that to me is a very sort of critical statement. There's no difference. The differences are the ones we create socially and they're the ones we create morally. Now I have said in the past, I have talked about ancient religions, like the religions of ancient Greece and, and Babylon and Sumeria, um, and even very, probably very, very early Judaism, which was very much like Canaanite religion. All of these very early religions, especially these pagan religions, are not about morality. It's not about right and wrong. It's just about the way the forces in the universe move. Sometimes they're in balance, sometimes they're not. Sometimes things have to happen to put them back in balance. But it's not about auspicious or inauspicious. Okay? Auspicious and inauspicious are preferences. They are based on what we feel those effects are on ourselves. Okay? And at this kind of level of knowledge... Nothing, everything that happens, none, none of it matters in the sense of, um, you know, if, if you're having bad times, it's not because, you know, necessarily the gods are displeased with you. Could be, um, in some of those old ways of thinking, but, or it could just be that there are things that are out of balance, but there's no idea here. The idea is that it's not that um, by living a certain quote unquote good life that you are going to um, avoid something. This is not your traditional. Uh, good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. Um, this is this is not even traditionally what we think of with Buddhism, with renouncing the world. Even the Buddha himself, uh, you know, as we think of, of him, uh, when we think of Gautama Buddha, uh, one of the things was he used to, you know, he had, he, of course, you know, was grew up very rich, but then he went to the desert to practice austerities, and one of the things he learned that very severe austerities are also a kind of attachment because you can become attached to your austerities and attached to your, you know, how good and how pure you are. And um, <clears throat> so this shows a fundamental danger. But Tara is saying, you know, I'm, I'm beyond all of that. Forget about your good and bad. And, you know, none of all of it's part of the same system. All of it is holy in its own way, if you want to use that term. Okay? All of it is part of the divine. So this to me is like a really powerful, powerful statement, um, and a powerful, um, critique of what we might normally think of as, um, you know, either traditional Buddhist practice or traditional Brahmin practice, or even in our traditional Western uh, practice, which if you're religious, um, 
you know, in, um, you know, you're either told to follow certain rules to avoid whether you call it sin or whether you call it something else. The idea of, um, it's almost a Zoroastrian idea of siding with the good over the evil. <clears throat> when, you know, as, as I frequently ask my religion students, we always have a class where I say, okay, define evil for me, you know? And there's always inevitably someone who connects it with morality. And I'm like, well, it's connected with morality maybe in as much as it may represent a lack of conscience, you know? Someone who can, you know, for example, brutally murder another person without any consideration for them as a human being uh, that person's probably got, is probably evil or probably has evil impulses. But what most people do, because they enjoy things that people consider to be um, excesses or um, somehow not moral, like women who like to have, you know, loose women who like to have sex and that kind of a thing, that, that they, they're somehow evil. It's like, yeah, it's not the word I would use. And according to this, it's like, no, that's that's part of everything. That is as sacred as everything else. And that is what tends to be missed by those who sit in the desert um, under their tree and practice their austerities. Um, uh, Alan Watts has a great lecture on this. Um, I forget what the name of the lecture is now. Uh, but I remember he talks about um, the, the spiritual person. It might be the you cannot improve yourself lecture. It might, it might be that one. But he says the... Um, the spiritual person needs like a beer and a burp, and he says, and the and the excessively material person needs a hard bed and a night in the in the woods. It's kind of like you need some elements of both, but it's not about um, renouncing one in favor of the other. Um, that that's not necessarily uh, the, the way that it is. And in the tantric um, view, it you know it's a no. You, you embrace all of it because all of it is divine, even if all of it's considered to be quote unquote Maya or illusion. Well, Maya is a goddess. Maya is divine. Um, <clears throat> as you move toward dissolution, you come to recognize that these things are temporal, but if you're not attached to them, it doesn't matter. It's like, okay, well, I can just enjoy this, and when it goes away, it goes away. So, um, so Tara, that story of Tara really drives home that truth. Okay, um, so let me talk about the maternal aspect of Tara. There's another story, which I'm going to read also from Kinsley, and, um, it's, it connects her to Shiva, okay? Uh, Kinsley says he's come across a particularly intriguing story about the two, meaning Shiva and Tara. The myth begins with the churning of the ocean. Shiva has drunk the poison that was created from the churning of the ocean, thus saving the world from destruction, but has fallen unconscious under its powerful effect. Tara appears and takes Shiva on her lap. She suckles him, the milk from her breasts counteracts the poison, and he recovers. So in this sense, even though Shiva is... A divine being, you know, she sort of quote unquote saves him from death. <clears throat> this myth is reminiscent of the one in which Shiva stops the rampaging Kali by becoming an infant. Seeing the child, Kali's maternal instincts come to the fore, and she becomes quiet and nurses the in infant Shiva. In both cases, Shiva assumes the position of an infant vis-a-vis -vis the goddess. Okay, so it, you know, so there's there's this relationship of Shiva and Tara as. Um, Oops, excuse me. Almost only dropped that. Almost as mother and son. Okay. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> and so what does this imply? Okay, again, this kind of subordinates Shiva to Tara. Um, but at the same time, uh, it, it shows kind of a gentler side, a gentler aspect of her. Um, and she is one who is able to overcome, um, you know, these, these sort of poisons. Uh, and this is something that, of course, her tiger skin would probably represent, this idea of being able to control 
all of these kinds of things. Usually it has to do with the passions, but you have to remember the demonic in Hinduism frequently has to do with um, certain elements that get out of control, you know, lust for power, you know, anger, hatred, you know, these things that get out of control and out of balance. So, you know, her influence is able to, um, her maternal side is able to counteract that, okay? So in a way, she is sort of almost the maternal aspect of Kali um, as well, in spite of her rather scary appearance. Now, her association with the cremation fire. Here's another story I want to read to you. Okay, let me just uh, find it in my note. Um, okay, <clears throat> uh, this is from a document that I had pulled, um, and of course I don't have the name of the source in front of me. I'll have to include it in the, uh, in the notes somewhere. Um, but just to, to read from this, this was something I found um, on a Hindu site, uh, a site having to do with the Mahavidyas on the web. There's another non-popular version of Tara story is when the firm landmass on Earth was created using fragments of Madhu and Kaitab's bone bodies. That did not cause the birth of life because there was nothing other than water and firm landmass on Earth. Hence, creation was still incomplete. After water and earth, the sun was required to provide life force. To create the same, Mahashakti had taken the form of Tara, and Mahadev, who was Shiva, had taken the form of Lord Dakineshwar. He and goddess Tara were the reasons that they had brought the sun into existence. Without the eternal sun, the earth was just a mere orb covered in ice on which life could not have survived. That is why Devi Tara had appeared, went from, had appeared from whom the sun... Um, from the sun had to arise, from whom the sun had to arise and supply light and energy to the earth. So she's not the sun, but she is the energy behind the sun. Tara has the capability to produce light, energy, and heat. When the power met with the power of uh, Akshobhya, which, by the way, is the serpent that she wears in her hair, it's another bodhisattva sort of figure who is um, connected to her, like almost like a spouse that, that um, but lives as a serpent in her hair. Their combined power became the source of the sun. And remember that the serpent in um, Hinduism, you know, we think of it, um, the serpent in the West, you know, you know, it's associated with the devil in the garden and, and things like that for a lot of people. The serpent uh, in the East definitely has to do with, uh, and in Christian Gnosticism, I guess, has to do with divine wisdom and, and, the, and the sort of life force. If you think about the kundalini in the spine, as we've talked about, the, the life energy that comes up through the spine, that's usually listed, uh, continue, considered to be the form of a serpent. So the serpent is actually considered to be very beneficent and represents life in the field of time um, with, the, with the power to throw off death, as Joseph Campbell said, mainly because the snake can shed its skin and kind of looks, it looks like you have a whole new snake, even though you really don't. He's just getting rid of his skin, but that's kind of the metaphor. Okay, back to this. When the combined powers of Lord um, Akshobhya and Devi Tara got integrated in the sea, many pulsating energy orbs were created and which led to the expansion of energy. Goddess Tara created tremendous airflow from her breath, which hit the energy bodies and led to their union. So these, of course, is the four traditional elements, fire, air, water, earth. And that's showing how Tara represents that fire element, okay, that, um, <clears throat> that brings light. Now, um, and also we have to think about, remember what we've said about the Shakti energy as the source. It's frequently um, portrayed as either sexual energy or as a fire or as, you know, it's, it's just this, this very um, potent blast uh, that, you know, is, again, mishandled. Like, that's why I say I, I tell people to use caution with kundalini yoga if they've not been properly trained um, by somebody who's, who's proficient. Um, 
you can do a lot of damage to yourself if your Shakti is suddenly activated in that way. I mean, it can cause mental trauma. It can cause physical trauma. So, you know, it's like anything else. It's like it's like turning on the electricity in your house without having somebody inspect the code. You know, I mean, it could, you know, it could turn everything on and then set your house on fire. So you got to be careful with the energy. So here, here Tara represents the Shakti sort of as this sun energy that, um, that, that warms the earth and that allows life to flourish. Okay, but now she's also associated with the cremation fire. So she serves a purifying function, um, getting rid of the body. Okay, um, not the consciousness, but the body itself. Um, now in Tantra, um, at death, um, I read this in, um, I think I read it in Kali's Odia. This was another, um, this is about a, um, an Odia, sort of a Kali uh, shaman, if you will, uh, who I think now is at the temple of Kali in Laguna Beach. But he's from India, and he talks about his... Um, I don't know. She, I don't know if she was sort of a, she was she was a woman who was close to him throughout his life. I can't quite remember their specific relationship, but he loved her very much. And when she suddenly died, she was bitten by a snake and died. Um, when they took the body away, he actually was told to mutilate the body, not because, um, you know, he you know, mainly because he wanted to. They wanted to say, don't attach yourself to the image of the body. Don't and don't hold the person back by your attachment to the image of them in this form. Okay, so the body is not considered quite as important. It's just one of the forms you can take, and it can go away, and then you take another form. Okay, so the cremation fire represents that purification, that getting rid of the attachment to whatever your circumstances are, uh, and being prepared for dissolution and rebirth or, or whatever. Um, now, this is not necessarily a final thing, but Tara also can bring one over the ocean of samsara. You know, that can you can take you off the wheel of uh, life and death. And that leads to her last association. That is the mother of compassion. Um, now, I, I have in my notes, I'm reminded of a, a, a bhajan, which is like a, a hymn or a song, a Hindu song, called Durge Durge. It's a very simple song. Um, but it's supposed to be about, um, it refers to Kali, Kapalini, you know, um, you know, the goddess Kali with her, you know, garland of heads. Um, and uh, so it, it, it kind of merges Durga, Durga and Kali, but there's this aspect that's mentioned, um, Karuna Sagarama, uh, the mother who is the ocean of compassion, okay? And Kali herself is very much highly associated with compassion. Now, <clears throat> if we take this, this very fierce Tara of Hinduism and compare it to the um, usually not fierce even though there are some, as we saw with those homages to Tara in Buddhism. Um, <clears throat> now we get down to the idea of what are we talking about when we talk about compassion. Now, the, um, the term compassion, usually um, it, it comes from, you know, the, the roots of the word come from the idea of suffering along with. So to have compassion for somebody, you know, compassion, pass, you know, passion, you know, comes from the term for like, you know, pathos or, suff you know, suffering. And then the, the COM part is like, you know, you know that, that together. So it's this idea of, um, you know, working, you know, be, being between, you know. Um, so it's where you, where you can understand or you can feel for someone else's suffering, okay, when you have compassion. So, um, and, when you, and when you are compassionate, then you behave in a certain way towards people. You're not, you're not just seeing them as objects. You're not just being selfish, saying, yeah, well, you know, whatever. I'm the only one who counts here. Um, compassion allows you to... But compassion doesn't always... I should, actually, I should be careful how I say that. Because sometimes even when you understand someone's suffering, 
the best thing for somebody is not always for you to just comfort them and, you know, feed them and nourish them. Sometimes the best thing you can do is to walk away from them and let them sort their stuff out. Um, compassion is not necessarily about always being maternal and nourishing. And of course we see that in Tara because she has both aspects. She can be very maternal, but she can also be, um, you know, she also has this ferocious, there's, there's an aspect of her that loves blood sacrifice. Okay. She's, um, <clears throat> she's about compassion in the sense of bringing clarity. Okay. About, um, keeping you from being trapped in an illusion that makes you unhappy. And in that sense, it, it's related to Buddhism because Buddhism's one of their main dictates is all human life is suffering. So when we talk about, um, you know, having compassion for suffering, sometimes that just simply means <clears throat> being able to recognize the illusory state that you're in so that you can end your suffering. Because if you realize, oh, you know, there's, you know, yes, this is happening, but it's more like a play or like an illusion, you may not take it as seriously and you may not suffer as much. You may be able to detach yourself from it. That doesn't mean that you don't necessarily participate or experience or enjoy it. This is the other message of Tara. But you recognize it for what it is, and it's not something you become attached or addicted to, okay? So the compassion part is the, um, you know, it's this cutting away of that which is false. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, so when you have that clarity in the truth, and so, you know, there's the illusion of separateness, but there's also this mindfulness of creation and dissolution as being part of the same process. And, you know, so, and, and being able to accept all of that as part of the process. It's like accepting all of it, the entire world, quote unquote, auspicious and inauspicious as sort of holy and everything being as it is. Now, um, <clears throat> I may have mentioned this in the past, but the one time, at least one of the times, um, it does, I, I can't say it's like this something that happens regularly, but when I've had experiences of what I consider to be a samadhi, okay, and they always come very spontaneously when they have come. It's not anything that I can bring on through practice or anything like that. Um, Although the very first time it happened, I had just been, I remember I was at work and, and I may have told this story already, so I don't want to be too repetitive, but I keep it short. But I had been at work and it was uh, New Year's Eve and, you know, I worked for the government and a lot of people got to go home early. My division didn't get to go home early and I was a union rep. Everybody was mad. Why did they get to home early? We don't, blah, 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 blah. right? So I remember I used, there used to be a labyrinth that the um, nearby convent would have. So I just thought, okay, and I had just recently learned to meditate, and I most recently received the mantra from my guru. So I thought, okay, well, I'm going to go over there and walk the labyrinth. So I did. Now, of course, the whole time I walked the labyrinth and tried to recite my mantra, all I could think was this nonsense going on at work. Uh, so I felt very sort of unsettled. And I remember walking out thinking, God, you know, you know, all this, this crap, it's like, you know, it just, the whole thing, because I had been doing practices for years even before that, and I just thought, is this all like just a waste of time or what? I mean... <clears throat> Why does, what does meditation lead to anyway, you know? And then it was almost like an answer to that. I walked outside and that was when I had my first experience of samadhi. And in, in, I, I mentioned this experience specifically because this whole essence of Tara as representing compassion, as representing acceptance of the auspicious and the inauspicious and of the world being at it is, that's all kind of rolled into that experience. And it's very, it's impossible to describe. But literally, you know, you, you almost can see things like you're standing in the center of this, 
um, this disturbance that that you know this this wave set of waves and energy that is what we perceive as the real world, um, and all of it is exactly as it needs to be, even even the stuff that we consider to be bad, and that's a very hard thing to fathom. And it's not it's not an intellectual or a moral. There's no judgment at all. It's just you feel the right the 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 isness of things. I don't even want to say the rightness of things. The isness of things. Things are. And um, I, I can't really say a whole lot beyond that. Um, and, and as you can see, describing it, you kind of go, yeah, okay, so what, you know? But no, it is absolutely the most profound, profound experience. And, um, and it allows you to see everything in a very, very different light. So I felt that was kind of, a, you know, an act of grace, as it were. I mean, that, that I had that experience. Because then I was just like, oh, and of course, you know, yes, there is, there are physical impacts on the body when that happens too. I mean, that was the first, I felt the Shakti like really super activated when that happened. And it was, uh, you know, <clears throat> but again, and, and it, it, it was weird because it was like walking, you know, walking in a, in a space of quiet and seeing the chaos rotating around you, but somehow it, it didn't touch you. So I don't know. It's very hard thing to describe, but this to me, I meant, you know, is the essence of this, um, compassionate mother who also represents the ferocity the ferocity 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 and the um <clears throat> and and the this sort of um complex interplay between life and death that we see in the world now tara is said to take souls over the ocean of samsara to liberation that is said so in this sense she is related to the buddhist tara and that she is compassionate you can see him as saving from death quote unquote in the eastern system that might be really it might be being saved from rebirth um, from being, you know, but, but rebirth actually is okay too. I mean, it's okay to keep playing the game over and over again until you get tired of it, you know? Um, and eventually you, you do get off the wheel, but, um, it's not quite so judgmental and didactic as we like to think. So, okay. Let me just tell you some, some final stories about Tara here. Um, find them in my note. Um, Okay. So again, this is from the similar document that I had, um, <clears throat> that I picked up on the web from a um, site on the Mahavidyas. And yeah, like I said, I have to find the, uh, the link for this. Um, but it says, according to the Adutta Ramayana, when Sita in the form of Kali slew the, slew the demon Ravana, Brahma and other deities propitiated her with hymns. Appeased, the goddess assumed the calmer form of Tara. Holding her sword in her right hand, she accepted a tiger skin loincloth from Brahma, removed her golden crown, piled her hair into a single jatta on top of her head, and bound it with the serpent Akshobhya. Rudra laid on the ground and requested the boon of Brahma Vidya, knowledge from her, to which she responded by placing her left foot on his chest and enlightening him. As a thanks, Shiva offered her a blue lotus and a skull cup. Okay, now why on his chest? Well, I mean, that's the foot of the goddess, you know, the Shakti activating the heart center, okay? And knowledge, you know, comes out of the heart center, whether it move up or down, okay? Um, and I hear my phone ringing over there, um, so I'm just going to have to try to ignore that for now. Um, okay, a uh, variant version of this uh, speaks of Tara's demon-slaying form. A demon called uh, Hayagriva wrought havoc everywhere, banishing the devas from the Amaravithati and robbing them of their possessions. The devas approached Brahma, who in turn led them to Kali. Kali created another goddess, Tara, from her third eye and sent her to defeat Hayagriva. In the ensuing battle, Tara slew Hayagriva. 
Okay. So again, she's another, um, in a way, she's, she's related to that Dorga form, you know, the, the slayer of demons, the remover of obstacles. Okay. So, um, okay, here's another one where they say a version from the Kalika Purana associates Tara with Matangi. Now, we've talked about Matangi, the, uh, the, the goddess of pollution. According to this version, when the devas were defeated by the demons uh, Shumba and Nishumba, okay, this is the beginning of the Devi, Devi Mahatmayam, if you remember, they sought refuge in the Himalayas and began to propitiate Devi. At that time, Shiva's wife, uh, Parvati, in her dark skin, in this time, in her dark-skinned form, Matangi, saw the devas and asked whom they were propitiating. Before the devas could answer, the fair-complexioned Mahasaraswati emerged from Matangi's body and replied that the devas were propitiating her. Since Mahasaraswati manifested from Matangi's body, the fair-complexioned eight-armed goddess came to be known as Koshiki, meaning sheath. In turn, Matangi's dark complexion caused her to be known as Kali and also as Ugratara. Okay, so this connects uh, Matangi and Tara, which, which again, as you can see, there's a tremendous amount of, um, you know, relationship between the other Mahavidyas, these other feminine forms, and Tara. In some senses, they're all one. Okay, but they represent different aspects. There's another that connects Tara to Shodashi to provide all forms of greenery and plants to the world. Devi Shodashi placed bamboo inside the earth and poured one drop of water from her water pot, gave birth to all plant life, and then all forest, trees, plants, and nature. Uh, Sodashi, who's also known as Tripura Sundari, uh, we are going to talk about in the next episode. Okay, so that might be a good segue to that for the next one. Um, but let's just sum up on Tara here. Okay, you have a terrible, fierce Hindu goddess who delights in blood sacrifice, uh, represents the cremation fires, uh, is always pictured with fire um, and with the bloody heads and so forth. But her essential nature is actually one of compassion and has a defined maternal side. Um, now here we're seeing compassion defined as, you know, taking, you know, taking someone uh, away from their illusions, keeping them from following false paths, okay? And what's false for someone? Well, it all depends. What's true for some person might be false for another. Um, there's an asocial or antisocial aspect to Tara, just as there is to all of the other Hindu uh, Mahavedyas and all the tantric goddesses. Uh, they don't represent the social norm, a uh, normal social order for women. They subvert the social order, okay? And they, they represent... Um, <clears throat> this, um, this, this supreme feminine power, uh, that is dominant over the men, not in our sort of patriarchal culture that, you know, where it's the other way around, or even in our religions where it's frequently the other way around. Um, <clears throat> and it leaves me with kind of one final reflection here, which is why Hindu society and like Western, well, Western society, it is kind of embedded in the religion, but in a religion where the divine mother is central why does it treat women as second-class citizens while having lofty feminine ideals? Okay, you, you worship the Devi, you worship, um, you know, these, um, these forms of the mother, you worship Lalita Tripura Sundari. I mean, all these very um, specific divine forms of the feminine are considered to be, um, <clears throat> you know, of, you know, the, the supreme powers in Hinduism. So why do women have the status that they have? Okay. And, um, and it's very interesting because the, the whole, it's not a question I'm sure that I can accurately answer. Perhaps it's one that the whole Chthonia system just kind of raises. Um, is it because you are afraid of those powers and you need to keep them in check in an appropriate way? Um, 
you know, and, and is it more about the difference between, um, the life of the average person and the person who carves their own way? You know what I mean? Um, cause materially and socially, there's a very different expectation for what people should, especially socially. Um, because the Mahavidyas represent, um, an upending of the social order and removal of social status. I remember a friend of mine, an Indian friend of mine who I used to work with, used to, um, she would talk about her daughter and if her daughter, you know, didn't listen to her or misbehaved or didn't want to do what she said, she'd refer to as chundi. You know, you're being chundi, you're being chundi, you know? Um, because, uh, which of course is, you know, is, we know chandika or chandi, another version of these goddesses, and usually the word means angry or, um, and so, yeah, so you're, this idea of the woman as chundi and, and people are, are frightened by that, particularly frightened by that, um, as though, you know, and I mean, and again, that, that particular shakti power is not only present in women, it's also present in men, it's present in everything. And I would personally argue that men who become in touch with their own shakti are actually more powerful men than men who seem to think that they're better than women or over women or have to put women in their place. If you have to do that, then you're, you're, you're actually weaker and you have something to be afraid of, is the way I look at it. You, if, uh, why do you need to be afraid of women and of, of the status of women? Why, why does it matter if your, your wife or whatever does, you know, certain things? Why does she have to have a certain place and you have to be the one in charge? The only reason you would have to do that is if you feel somehow threatened by that energy or you feel somehow a loss of power in the face of the feminine. So all things to keep in mind here. Um, it's not, uh... You know, and these are part of the questions that I always ask in connecting these kind of, um, you know, archetypal ideas, if you were, these these sort of um, core, I, I don't know if I want to call them, I mean, they're religious to a point, they're spiritual to a point, these things that have to do with the nature of reality um, in this, um, you know, uh, the, that's non-material. Well, that maybe includes the material, I shouldn't say it's non-material but having to do with the, the essence or the true, um, you know, the true essence of consciousness and, and of energy in the universe from this point of view. Um, why is the feminine, the, fem, the feminine, you know, we're, we're starting to see in this power why the feminine might be considered so threatening to people. But then the question becomes, well, is the way to deal with that to try to repress it and subjugate it and to put it in its place, you know, to, in the name of quote-unquote control? Is that really what the answer is? Or if there was a looser adoption of these energies and um, an acceptance of them, just as the, uh, the, the sage of Asisto, when, when he talks to the Buddha, the Buddha says, you need to be kind to women and you need to treat women with respect. You can't treat women like they're, you know, because, the, you know, because they are sort of the material embodiment of that. Um, and again, so are men too. But men are, are, are very much... Um, shamed out of deal, dealing with any part of their feminine side. You know, you see, like, for example, a boy who plays with um, dolls, and then the, some some male figure has to come along and say, he's not going to play with dolls, that's not manly, you know? Not all, and again, this is a different time, not all fathers or uncles or, you know, brother, whatever would do something like that. But you still do see a fair amount of this. Uh, men who like to dress as women, it's just kind of like, that's that's not acceptable. Um, so, you know, there's, there's still this idea that the feminine, and, and we often say it's because the feminine is somehow weaker and it's like, no, actually I suspect it's because it's the opposite. So with that final thought, um, I will, 
um, leave you for now. And I'm going to, again, encourage you, please check out Chthonia.net. Um, it is totally revamped. Um, things should be a lot clearer to use. Um, and, you know, there, there's a lot more on offer there. Uh, the podcast is certainly there. My list of publications is there. But there is also... Um, <clears throat> a lot more in terms of my related services, um, and my other video series, Liminal Tarot, but I also do, um, a, I have a Reiki, um, system that I use as well. So people are feel, feel, um, can feel free to check, check out those things and, uh, check out those other videos as well on YouTube. It's on the same channel, Cathonia. Uh, yes, check me out on YouTube, Facebook, uh, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm there mostly as, I'm as Cathonia on YouTube. Cathonia podcast uh, as one word on uh, Twitter and Instagram, and then um, Cathonia podcast is two words on Facebook. Um, it's just the nature of when I had to sign up for names, what what was available and what wasn't. So check those out, um, and you know, and uh, like I said, if you're interested in donating, uh, Patreon.com/Cathonia, you can become a patron, or um, if you go to Cathonia.net, there's a place to make a one-time donation if you're interested in doing that. Um, it helps me make, um, you know, have better content, um, maybe get, perhaps get some better technology, uh, and help support me in a time when, um, I actually don't have right now, like a whole lot of financial support for this. So, um, that would be uh, very helpful if it's something that interests you enough and you're willing. Um, and I thank all of those who already are my patron subscribers. You've all been great troopers who've, uh, stuck with me. Um, this is just about a year that I'm recording this, that I've been doing Cathonia. So um, I thank you all very much, and for everyone, I will talk to you, uh, or talk, <laughs> tell you more, I should say, in the next episode.